We produce a lot of oil here in Western Canada, much more than we can use. So what do we do? We send it to whoever will give us the most money for it. But no one can seem to agree on the best way to maximize the value we get for this natural resource. It's fairly common to hear people lament the perception that Canada, and specifically Alberta with its oil sands developments, ships too much crude oil without first upgrading it to a higher quality product. We sell it for cheap and let others profit. Is this perception true? Are we selling ourselves short? The government of Alberta may think so, with recently announced financial incentives to build partial upgrading facilities in the province. But that further begs the question of what does partial upgrading even mean? And what does peanut butter have to do with it? In this episode, we're downloading what everyone's talking about on upgrading in Alberta. This is What the West. common to hear folks opine that Alberta should not export so much of its oil sands production without first upgrading it to a more valuable product. By doing this, they argue, Alberta can add value to the commodities it exports and presumably make more money, which is always a good thing, right? But the fact remains that most of Alberta's oil sand production is not upgraded before it leaves the province. However, in this year's budget, uh, the government of Alberta earmarked a billion dollars, one billion dollars, to help fund the development of partial upgrading facilities. And so that's what we're here to talk about today on this podcast. So I have both Kevin Byrne from IHS Market and Kent Fellows from the uh, Calgary Public Policy School here to talk about this. So um, before we really jump into it, uh, maybe I can get you guys to introduce yourselves just so uh, we can tell what you sound like and differentiate between you. So, uh, Kevin, if you want to say a few words about who you are and, and what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Kevin Byrne, and I work at a, a company called IHS Market, uh, international consultant agency, and we have a large office here in Calgary. I run our North American, or I shouldn't say run, I, I represent a team of analysts here at, in Calgary that look at the Western Canadian sedimentary basin uh, and the oil markets uh, surrounding uh, the value of those crudes as they move to market. Awesome. And uh, Kent, can you uh, introduce yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Kent Fellows. I'm a research associate at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Uh, I operate mostly in the energy and environmental policy area. One of the things among many that we look at is uh, scope for value added inside the province, what value added means. Uh, and in particular, in 2017, we published a paper on partial upgrading. So uh, lots of interest in that since then. Website plug. Website. Oh, yeah. You can download that for free at uh, policyschool.ca. There we go. I think I'm contractually obligated to say that. Thank you, Kevin. You're welcome. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a great paper and partly one of the reasons why we are interested in bringing both of you guys on. Um, uh, I think it's a very interesting topic that, you know, not at least before I kind of read and heard about what you guys were looking into and researching, uh, didn't know too much about. So hopefully uh, we can uh, help educate some of our listeners as well, too. Um, so I guess let's let's get into it, and I let's just start from the very top, and and just talk about what you know. What are we talking about when we say partial upgrading or upgrading uh, oil sands production and that? Like, what does that what does that even mean? Um, sure. Well, maybe we'll start with the term upgrading uh, first and foremost. So, the oil contained in the majority of the oil sands region is an extra heavy crude oil that's known as bitumen. And in its natural state, if you were to remove it from the earth and try to send it to market, it's too viscous to meet the requirements, basically to ship it by pipeline. 
originally, most of the oil sands extraction uh, began with the idea of taking uh, taking a heavy crude processing unit from a refinery downstream, which is a specialized piece of equipment that's capable of reaching specific or higher temperature and pressure that is able to take some of those heavy molecules out of that oil and convert them to higher value refined products. And so they typically you'd find this downstream of refineries. At the time, at the beginning of the oil sands, they would put these upstream in, in the integrated, they were known as integrated minings, uh, mining projects, because the pipelines at the time didn't reach these complex facilities. They were selling into the Midwest and into the Edmonton area, and they didn't have that ability to process that crude. So they were converting it. They were using these facilities to take a heavy, extra heavy crude oil, converting it to a medium sour or, or light sour or light sweet crude oil. And that's where the term upgrader came from. It's it's a unique term for heavy oil production, uh, location of he- downstream heavy oil conversion capacity in the upstream sector. Yeah. So just to build on that a little bit, I mean, I was like getting sort of a mental picture, but obviously the, the visual doesn't work all that well because we're doing a podcast. <laughs> but if, if you think about um, sort of a, um, a peanut butter, that's sort of the, the viscosity of a lot of this stuff when it comes out, maybe a little bit thinner than that. But it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really flow. You might be able to pour it, but it doesn't flow, so you can't put it in a pipeline. Um, and so, as Kevin was saying, I mean, you need to do something to it to get out of the province. Historically, that was doing this full upgrading where you take it and convert it into a, a synthetic. So historically, historically, it was upgraded within the province uh, to the, and then put into a pipeline that way. But now... Yeah. So just to tell you the complete story. So, you know, they, they had these mining projects, the process they used leave, left some uh, material in the bitumen that's required the upgrading uh, to convert it to a, a lighter crude oil to allow pipeline export. But also those pipelines went to facilities that didn't have the ability of converting a heavy sour crude oil, uh, which would have been bitumen. Um, around the 2000s, we saw the evolution of uh, thermal extraction. So we had a subsurface thermal extraction technology, which is injection of steam into oil sand seams that are too deep to be surface mined. These didn't have the same scale in terms of the capacity as a large mining project. You can think of a mining project being 100,000 barrels per day or more, and thermal projects began at 5, 6, 5, 10, 15. Now they're quite sizable. But at that scale, the economics of building a, a conversion unit on site just didn't work. And so they looked for alternatives, uh, and one of the alternatives they found was to take a lighter hydrocarbon product, uh, which is known as condensate. It's typically a natural gasoline for those people who are really into it, um, and that's something with a very it's very low density. And they mix it with bitumen, and they create a diluted bitumen barrel that meets pipeline specifications because that's all they're trying to do is meet pipeline specifications. And then they could send it to market. And over that same period, we saw infrastructure being built out that allowed them to access refiners with heavy kit. Uh, so the ability to convert those, those heavy molecules into higher value refined product downstream. And that kind of married together around the 2000, that was the advent. So we had cyclic steam thermal extraction since the mid eighties, that was getting bigger. And then in 2000, you saw steam assisted gravity drainage, which is a horizontal technology. Um, most of the oil sand seams that are subsurface are too narrow for cyclic steam stimulation. They're just not that narrow horizontal technology allowed you to access that economically. And that began in commercially around 2001. And that's become the dominant source of oil sands growth. And with it, we've seen a, a growth in the uh, in diluted bitumen going to market. Okay. And that's- yeah, so if you, I mean, if you're familiar with sort of the pictures of what the oil sands look like, um, you get the big open pit mines with the shovels and the trucks. Uh, that, that's 
tends to be sort of the older style technology. They're still doing that. It uh, hasn't gone away anywhere. But as Kevin was saying, those are much bigger um, production facilities in terms of the barrels per day that they're putting out. So it makes sense because of the economies of scale of, of building an upgrader to pair that with an upgrader. With the smaller um, in situ, so, sort of these deeper deposits that you that you are drilling wells down to get out, the scale is a little bit smaller. It didn't make sense to have um, upgrading facilities paired with the, with the wellhead on that one. Um, I feel like maybe I just echoed exactly what you said, but I like I like talking, so I to contribute something. <laughs> I thought you did a better visual for a podcast than I did. Oh well, yeah, no, that's that's uh no, that's very very clarifying, and I like the uh, the analogy to peanut butter that that helps me visualize it at least because I love peanut butter, but um, <laughs> you can mix it with honey. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and so and so with these these sag D operations, that's the, that's the same thing when we're saying diluted bitumen. That's the same thing as shorthand like dill bit. That's another another term for it, correct? Yeah, there's different okay. things you can use to dilute bitumen, and there are different like you know cocktails that are produced in the oil sands. There's synbit, which is a mixture of the synthetic crude oil mixed with bitumen. There's a dill bit. Uh, there's dill synbit. Uh, these are overgeneralizations. Uh-huh. Uh, in general, in each category, the dominant form is dill bit uh, okay. in terms of marketed cocktail, uh, other than synthetic crude oil. Okay. Yeah, you're you're sort of a casual follower of of the oil industry. So I mean, I think about my parents. You know, they they know that there's a West Texas Intermediate benchmark. They know that there's Western Canada Select benchmark. Um, but when you start drilling down, one of the things that that's really important to this whole discussion is the resource is different depending on the field that you're getting it out of. And it's also different depending on what you mix in with it. So when Kevin says like a bunch of different cocktails, yeah, tons of different cocktails of, of how you can uh, sort of structure these things. Once you get the hydrocarbon out of the ground, what do you mix it with? How are you piping it? Um, it's definitely not a homogenous market. There's an awful lot going on there. Yeah. Very much a case by case basis. Um, how, how do, do either of you have kind of the stat at hand of, how much of the oil sands production uh, is upgraded in Alberta and, and then how much is is um, diluted? I think I'm um, just going off last year's numbers. Uh, oil sands production last year was about 2.6 million barrels per day in terms of production, which doesn't include the, the, the diluents, which are not indigenous to oil sands. And of that, about a million barrels uh, is synthetic crude oil. Just thinking off the top of my head, give or take. Yeah, that. Uh, I won't contradict you because I think you're probably better than I am. Yeah, ballpark. ballpark yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so still a substantial amount that is is upgraded is synthetic, um, but still the the majority, 70 percent. I'm doing the math in my head right. Is is not. Yeah, twenty eight percent. Yeah, I, I, if I I would have said about thirty percent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know, it is a true misconception that there there is already significant processing capacity in Alberta. Not only in the upstream and the oil sands region to convert it to synthetic crude oil, but also the refining sector in Edmonton is quite sizable too. Mm-hmm. So, so for a lot of the newer uh, oil sands facilities that there uh, that have come online in, in the recent past and, and probably into the future, you know, it, the economies of scale doesn't make sense to to build a, a full upgrader. But um, I'm guessing there's something well, different about partial upgrading. Or maybe that. Uh, maybe I'll back up before you go there. There is one more consideration. You know, the economics and upgrading, at least initially, was about 
economies of scale and access to, to complex refineries. And they didn't have that in the earliest oil sands days. So they, if you sold a bitumen or diluted bitumen, that refiner wouldn't be able to convert that heavy material into valuable refined products. So they'd have to sell intermediate product and the value of that would be less. So that was part of the reason for the earlier uh, uh, upgraders. As we moved into the 2000s, you saw the advent of SAG-D and they lacked scale. You also saw a, a shift between about 2008 to 2014, a fundamental shift in the oil markets. You know, the oil sands, the idea of the oil sands stemmed out of the belief that North America was basically, or North America and the world was facing a, a situation where oil was going to become increasingly scarce. And when you looked at the world, there were very few places in the world seen as capable of growing oil production. Canada was one, the oil sands being the third largest resource, a singular resource deposit on the planet. And so capitals flowed in to try to figure out and unlock this material. And uh, what we saw happen in 2008, you saw uh, the same sort of creativity and ingenuity that locked, unlocked the oil sands with SAG-D technology being deployed in, in the United States into uh, shale gas plays and then into uh, shale oil. And we saw a rapid uh, prolific, uh, prolific growth, unprecedented history of oil markets in terms of the volume being released to the market and the speed at which it came to the market. And that precipitated the crash in oil prices. So keep your, if you back up to 2008, the main mentality at that point was we saw a world where the availability of light crude oil, so we're talking about non-homogeneous crudes, was seen to be declining or perceived to decline every year. And availability of heavy crude oil, like from Canada, was seen as growing. And the value or the economics of processing or taking a heavy barrel and converting it to light crude oil is also predicated on the change in value between those two products. So if you're in a situation where you see the light crude oil is becoming increasingly scarce, you know, supply and demand fundamentals is going to be bid up. At the same point, if you have a heavy crude oil is seen as increasingly plentiful, you have a situation where the value of that is going to go down. And so you had a widening of the price difference between light and heavy crude oil globally. And that is not only did there's a, you know, scale issues in terms of investing, upgrading, there's economic gain to be had in that environment and capturing that spread. Then you had shale take off. You had downward pressure on the price of light crude oil as a result. Now we're plentiful in light. And we've seen declines in availability of heavy from Latin American suppliers. Mexico is in a long-term decline. Venezuela is just falling off a cliff. And so the value of heavy crude oil is seen as increasingly scarce. So it's being bid up while the value of light crude oil is being pushed down. And the relative spread or difference in price between those two grades of crude has collapsed with it, the economics to cover the cost of building these upgraders. Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of that goes back to the earlier point that you know, we tend to think of these, well, not we, but people tend to think of these markets as very homogenous in terms of the product. Uh, they're not. We've got a lot of different resources coming from a lot of different plays and they're not perfect substitutes for each other, right? I mean, one bar a barrel of light is not a substitute. If you like for a chunky of peanut butter or yeah, not. If you like chunky <laughs> peanut butter or smooth, I guess that that's yeah, going back to the peanut butter analogy. Um, so and this is something I learned from from Kevin's work. Uh, so it really is a case where um, you have to look at where's the niche, where where are you getting the most bang for the buck? And it's not all or nothing in terms of the processing. And so this, we can finally get around to partial upgrading. Because uh, what we do with partial upgrading is, uh, you know, we start with that heavy bitumen. Uh, and then instead of doing a full upgrading where you take it all the way to a, a sort of a light, sweet synthetic, uh, right up at that part of, of, of sort of the, the, the value scale, you're getting it just to the point where you can put it on a pipeline, but without having to mix it with diluent. So you lower the viscosity, you do just a little bit of, of processing. 
um, and you get a bit of the gain. Um, but in terms of the net gain, uh, the economics of it actually at the moment look more promising than the economics of either um, full upgrading or continuing to uh, to export Dilbit. Because the thing with Dilbit that we haven't mentioned up to this point is the condensate uh, that you have to mix with the bitumen or really whatever you're using to thin it out tends to be a fairly expensive um, product. You know, it's it's desirable for, for a number of different um, aspects. It is on that lighter, um, thinner end. And so what increasingly is ending up happening as we increase production inside of Western Canada is we're having to import condensate from other places where they have access to light, sweet, crude, or, or processed. And uh, what that means is we end up importing from uh, sort of a, um, a low-cost jurisdiction to a high-cost jurisdiction, and then we export that with our bitumen, exporting it from a high-cost or high-priced jurisdiction to a low-priced jurisdiction. So that what I, another way to phrase that is the condensate is worth more in Edmonton than it's worth in the Gulf Coast. The bitumen is worth more in the Gulf Coast than it's worth in Edmonton. So you end up mixing the bitumen to get the value uh, of, of shipping it south with the condensate where you're losing value. So it really is a cost of production if you think about it that way. What partial upgrading does is it gets that diluent out of the barrel, uh, which can lower the, the, the cost pretty dramatically and, and uh, has pretty decent uh, return on investment, we think, when we run the numbers. So so just so I understand this correctly, so so with the partial upgrading, I mean, so one of the, you know, what, what Kevin was saying about, you know, it's not just the economies of scale, but also it's a supply and demand for the, you know, an upgraded crude or, an, or a non-upgraded crude. Um, and, and, and part of that equation is, is, is the refinery capacity for those types, right? Is it, it's, it's true that like a, a refinery is going to be set up just to kind of to accept one type of crude um, and, and to be able to accept another type of crude would be, you know, a very expensive endeavor. Is that the correct? Uh, it's, yeah, I'm not a downstream person, but let me, let me translate the way it's been explained to me. And I'll start by saying refining is an incredibly complicated business. <laughs> Um, within a, a refinery that we have in North America, most of them are very old, but they've been re-engineered and reinvested in many multiple times. Refiners will tailor their kits, their, their processing capacity to the available crudes that they can get their hands on. And they're always looking to maximize their margin. So that means lower cost inputs, higher and tailoring their output to maximize the highest cost okay. output to yield. So gasoline or diesel or specific specifications. Over time, obviously, the crude slates or the availability of crude changes. But if you've made that investment to put in a heavy processing unit, and globally what we've seen is refiners making those investments to different scale. There, there, aren't, there is no one fit. Um, I think that's an important thing. So you'll scale your, your different processing units. So you have a unit for the heavy end. You'll have a unit for your middles. I'm way oversimplifying this. Um, refiner is going to throw something at me probably. Um, but you can think of those those units being tailored to the available crews in the market. So they're going to be different in every market. Um, but if you made that investment on a heavy processing kit, like a, a coker, which basically uh, reaches high temperatures to knock out some of the astral teens in, the, in, the, in, the, in a heavy barrel of oil, you're going to want to continue to fill that thing up because it generates you money. So while you may have plentiful light, sweet crude oil around, it doesn't have a big chunk of uh, this residual material, this heavy material in it. So they're going to be hunting for that to fill that unit up. And that's what the oil sands can offer, those heavy processing units, even in a nation that's swimming in light, sweet crude oil. Got it. So that's why we've seen, even in spite of the U.S. tight oil boom, increasing exports from Canada. Now, in part, that's because our pipelines go one direction, yes. But the other part is there is a demand 
for Canadian crude to fill those units in the Gulf Coast, which they're finding that those traditional suppliers, Latin America, Venezuela, are not uh, able to supply to the same degree. So that, you know, that's part of it. Like to, I'll, I'll rephrase what Ken sir, said earlier. Crude quality matters, uh, and the market is not homogeneous. Mm-hmm. And so with partial upgrading, you're still able to serve the same or a lot of the same uh, folks who would be buying your, your crude if, when it had dilutant agents. Uh, or... It depends, and Ken can speak to this a little bit more. It depends on the severity of the process used in the partial process. Mm-hmm. So you can think of upgrading as a misnomer uh, in sense it's just a heavy processing unit with a fancy name. And partial upgrading is sort of the same thing. So the amount of work you want to do on those molecules, you can move it from a raw crude oil right through to a gasoline or diesel. You're picking a sweet spot in terms of the amount of upfront capital required to take it to a place that maximizes your return. So uh, in upgrading, you are converting some of it into diesel and you are blending it back in to create a synthetic crude oil. In partial upgrading, you're choosing that level of severity. And in doing so, you are changing the profile of that crude oil, the amount of residual material in it. The thing with the United States is, uh, you know, so light, sweet crude oil, they're, they're supplied. They don't need any more of it. So taking a full a barrel right through to that range, not quite as good right now in terms of economics, or at least making the incremental investment. If you're there, you're probably fine. Um, what you're looking at is a slate where we can, we're increasingly taking out the heavy sour component. We're, Canada is the largest single supplier in the United States, largest single supplier of heavy sour crude oil in the United States. What's left is the medium sour band uh, of crudes. And Canada has some production, but it's not a large market for us as a supplier. And a lot of that still comes from the offshore uh, in, in the United States. So uh, that's I think that's part of the opportunity for partial upgrading. But I th- from our standpoint, the biggest opportunity sitting there is the diluent avoidance. Yep. The cost is not inconsequential uh, to producers. So that's the band they're playing with. But I'll let Ken speak. Yeah, I mean, just picking up on that point, I mean, the diluent avoidance is when we run the numbers, depending on the different um, sort of assumptions on what your various costs are, it's half or more of the of the positive economic value that you get out of a partial upgrader. So, I mean, going from uh, really heavy bitumen to sort of a medium or medium heavy partial upgrading, um, in terms of that and the value of the product that you're selling, that is going to move the value of the product you're selling up a little bit. But, but a big margin of that is is the diluent avoidance. I mean, that, that cuts out costs of transportation really dramatically. So, that's the big aspect. So, um, so a slight, slight premium on your product, but but big, big cost reductions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're looking at, you know, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers we had in there, but, you know, five to $10 per barrel on a, on a price uplift, and then probably another seven to 14 on the diluent avoidance. So it is, oh, wow. it is the larger chunk generally. Um, the other thing, and, and I, I want to keep this simpler for people who are listening, because, you know, we're not all petroleum engineers, God knows I'm not. Um, but the, the different technologies that are on the table are not homogenous either, right? So when Kevin's saying, you know, it depends on the severity of the process, uh, you got some of these guys who are coming in with technologies that plan just to hit the sweet spot. So they look at what the pipelines will take in terms of an API gravity, and that's what they target, and they're just over that. Uh, you've got other processes that go a little bit further upscale. Um, you've got some that do partial diluent removal, so they're not even taking all the diluent out. They're getting it pretty close, and then you splash a little bit of diluent in there 
uh, so that you can pipe it. But there's probably about 10 to 12 technologies, depending on how you count them. Uh, and they're all kind of in development stages. None of them's commercial yet. They're not that far along. So you're talking about maybe some of them who are doing bench scale tests, some of them who are doing a little bit bigger than that, maybe a couple hundred barrels per day. Um, they're getting closer. They're getting closer. Yeah. Some some that may be moving to a thousand barrels per day, but they're all, of course, jumping at the bit um, because, as you said off the top, the province wants to throw some money behind this. Uh-huh. So it's uh, it's definitely moving, and we're expecting it to move pretty fast in the next couple of years. Okay, and and what's fast <laughs> in the next couple of years? <laughs> no. No, it'll be a quick couple of years. And a quick couple of years. That's right. And so, and then there's one other thing that's just in the back of my head about you know the the kind of economics of, of this. Um, it's something I've, I've I've seen mentioned is you know so you you're 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 taking out the cost of the diluting agent, um, and so that's a big thing. But this this will also have an impact on how how much on pipe like not it's not going to increase pipeline capacity, but because you're not including all the stuff you know, mixed into this, you know, the product that you're selling, then theoretically you'll be able to cram more of the, the commodity you are selling into, into the existing pipelines that we do have. Is that uh, a correct statement or, and, and if it is like how, how important is that for this uh, equation as well too, especially considering, you know, all the uh, pipeline debates we're having in Canada right now and, and access to markets and, and that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm going to jump in first because I know what Kevin's going to say. I don't give him the option to say that afterwards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. What it does is it, it increases effective capacity, right? Because you're not transporting that condensator, that diluent. Uh, you're not filling up the pipe with that. So that's, um, that's what, about 30, 40% of dill bit would be condensate roughly, depending on... 30 Thirty percent, yeah. So you think of every barrel that you're, that you're partially upgrading, uh, you're getting, you know, 0.3 of a barrel more or less do the math in my head, but it's, you know, it's close to that because you have to play with the fractions, but whatever, uh, you know, you're getting, you're getting part of that uh, in terms of, of open pipe capacity. So um, you're more effective in what you're transporting. Um, so it's, it's a non-trivial concern um, because we are facing hard pipeline capacity constraints. You look at the apportionment numbers that come from the National Energy Board. Uh, most of the pipes coming out of Alberta Shippers want to ship more than they can. They nominate larger volumes to ship than what they're actually able to ship. Those pipes are full. They may not be full 100% of the time, but they're certainly full uh, a lot of the, a lot of the time. They're overfull. They're overfull. <laughs> yeah, they're overfull. And and I mean, we've seen that because we've gotten num- numerous proposals for new pipelines, expanded pipelines, all that stuff. We know they're full. Mm-hmm. And we have and so, increases in rail, uh, oil by rail, and, and all that too. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, when we did the paper in 2017, we ran uh, two scenarios looking at sort of what some broader social benefits would be or or benefits to the rest of the province that wouldn't occur just for the uh, operator, the partial partial upgrader. And, uh, you know, one is, okay, well, if we had volumes coming back off rail onto a pipeline, what could you save there? Another is if we got some incremental production, and, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're, I mean, they're non-trivial. They're, they're not huge, but they are significant. That being said, and, and I'm going to cut Kevin off uh, before he gets a chance, but I'm sure he'll expand upon this. 
um, by no means is partial upgrading a substitute for increased pipeline capacity, that you look at sort of the return cost per dollar. Um, and I know we've both got comments from from skeptics saying, no, 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 it's a bigger it's a bigger deal than you think it is. Uh, but when I run the numbers, you know, the, the pipeline is by far the better investment if you are trying to grow uh, bitumen production and you're trying to do it that way. So I see them more as complements than substitutes. The partial upgrading will increase effective pipeline capacity, um, but it is not a substitute for new pipelines because the cost effectiveness of a new pipeline just blows the water out of cost effectiveness of partial upgrading for the purposes of, of getting more effective pipeline capacity. Um, and I, that's a bit of a word soup in there. So apologies for that. But I think there's I think there's a singular uh, message in that somewhere if you listen to that sentence again. <laughs> so just to comment on this, because this is this is where Kent and I disagree, but I don't think we're actually that far apart. Um, the partial processing is in no way a solution for pipelines. And I think that's what you said. And the sense is to bring one of these plants on, you know, you have to break ground, you have to construct it. You're looking at uh, two, three years, maybe four. Uh, at this point, we're over the line in available pipeline capacity and resolution needs to occur. The scale at which a partial upgrading would have to build out to solve this is astronomical. You've got, you know, a million five barrels of, of product needing blending of some sort. Uh, on top of that, you know, if you look at what it, what partial would save you, you know, in 100,000 barrels, it would save you 30,000 barrels in four years, possibly. Um, so it's just not capable of scaling up in the time needed to do it. And what people really need is assurance that the product can get to market. And partial upgrading provides market diversification. It doesn't provide that assurance a product can get to market and the value will be received, will be kept whole, which pipelines can provide. And I think that's a distinction. The other good part is where does this diluent come from? A lot of people have this conception that the diluent is 100% imported. And so if we cut it out, it's a net gain for us. About half the diluent supply, so I say it's about a half million dollar barrels per day right now is diluent that's being used. Half of it comes domestically. So you're talking about cutting out uh, a market uh, if you've went full scale, you're cutting out producers that are benefiting from the situation in Western Canada from being able to sell condensate. Either they're integrated into an oil sands plant or they're selling to them. Um, they're, they're benefiting in the sense that they can sell their product at a premium in Western Canada to an oil sands producer who then moves it to market for them. And that segment of the economy has been growing rapidly because that's the liquid rich plays uh, in the Montney and the Duvernay and elsewhere. And that's another important consideration is man you know, how much partial upgrading you build out. If you can carve out imports and, and change the pricing relationship, that's probably in the producer's writ large benefit. Um, but there is also a domestic condensate industry that's grown up over the last few years that would be infected by this as well. Sure. And they need egress as well. Yeah. And going back to the scale issue, I mean, if you read uh, the government of Alberta's um, call for proposals on this, they're looking to support up to five different technologies. That doesn't mean they're going to support five. That means that they're not going to support any more than five. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think, you know, depending on what the volume of partial upgrading ends up becoming, it does have an impact on the rest of the market. There, there are general equilibrium effects that will ripple through because as you reduce the demand for condensate in Alberta, it goes back to, you know, it's, it's the economics. Uh, as you reduce the, the demand, that price is going to fall down. Um, and that makes Dilbit more attractive than it is right now, uh, potentially, yeah. you know, it, and, and as Kevin, as you said, I mean, it, that hurts domestic producers that are producing condensate. Yeah. Well, and then there's, we haven't talked about the refiners. Um, right. If I'm a refiner in the Midwest who's made investments to process diluted bitumen, I think I'm going to feel pretty strongly if you try to change my feedstock. 
at this point. I'm not necessarily going to price value that to the same degree as the other commodity that I've been integrated to. So there is, you know, when we look at partial upgrading, uh, we think it's very optimal. We, 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 you know, think there's a lot of promise. We think there's potential to do dillion avoidance and improve economics. But we view it as a market diversification strategy and introduction of new blends possibly to target new segments uh, and new markets. Um, and, and we don't see it as this, the one size fits all kind of thing for everybody. So that that's a, that, that was something I was kind of thinking, you know, so there, there's kind of, you know, this, this isn't something that we just want to go and say, okay, we want to get to a point where we're partially upgrading every last bit of, of oil sands production. That's not already being upgraded in this province. Like there's a, a lot of diminishing returns here. Um, and, and one of the big, uh, you know, things that you're calculating against, as you were saying, is, is the cost of the, of, of diluting, um, to, to ship on, on pipelines. And, and kind of, I think you're, you're talking about how, you know, a lot of it's coming domestically and, and in the production of it is actually increasing with the Motney uh, play and, and other places in Western Canada. Is there, is there a risk that, you know, we might get into a situation where the diluting agents are get, you know, if we're, if, if, we're producing so much that it becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and then partial upgrading just doesn't make sense at all anymore. Or, yeah, I don't think we're there. Uh, you'd have to produce <laughs> another quarter million barrels. Be quite a bit. I think there's great potential in those unconventional plays, um, but that's a pretty rapid growth rate. Mm-hmm. At this point, I think it's safe to say there's room for room for both. Uh, but it's something to watch that it the market is integrated. It's complex, and the part, parts influence each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, the, the size of that condensate market dictates the value of that condensate domestically, which uh, has been supportive of that industry. But in higher oil prices, that'll, that'll trump, trump that for sure. Right. Um, it, yeah, but I, I think it's, I don't see them being in conflict. Yeah. It's something to be, to watch. And of course, either yeah, way, it's going to be diversification is always there. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think the diversification word is one that, uh, deserves to be said in this context. You know, I've had I've had interesting discussions with other economists at the University of Calgary. Uh, I won't say names oh, specifically. No, I won't say names specifically. But I mean, <laughs> some of them laughing at the fact that this was a recommendation from the Energy Diversification Advisory Committee, which it was partial upgrading. I mean, part of this this uh, Alberta call for uh, for proposal on this came out of the Energy Diversification Advisory Council. And uh, you know, the, the criticism is sort of, well, we're going to diversify energy by investing in energy. Well, that doesn't, you know, that's a little bit silly. And you go, no, because it, it is, I mean, they are different products, as we're saying. And and I think when Kevin says, you know, there's room for both, uh, I mean, I think I think there is because partially upgraded bitumen is not raw bitumen. It's not fully upgraded bitumen. It's not light sweet. I mean, there, there are all these different uh, products that come in, in, in the, the crude oil market and there is or should be room for, for all of them. Uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty about specifics. We don't know what it's going to be priced at. We don't know what the impact on the winning technologies will be. We don't even know what the winning technology is going to be. So we don't know the characteristics of, of what the partially upgraded bitumen are going to be, uh, aside from sort of a range of, of API volumes uh, values based on, on sort of their preliminary calculations. So there's lots of uncertainty here. Um, but, you know, being optimistic going into this, uh, the paper that we did in 2017, when you talk to, to people who are in the industry, I think there is some optimism that uh, that this uh, could work, and if it does, it's it's going to be beneficial to the province. Cool. Yeah. And and, and before, like the, the the last thing I want to hit on is is the government's decision to, to kind of get into this and 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 
try to push it along. But before that, just one other one other question is about the process because I, I was looking at you know the government's call for proposals uh, for for funding and and financial assistance. And one thing that they you know one benefit they also tout is is environmental benefits with partial upgrading. Um, and I'm just not clear where exactly is is this does this reduce like the energy intensity of of the oil that that is uh, I guess processed and refined or do you guys know anything on that? I know, I know we're not not engineers, but um. <laughs> so I, I mean on this one you're you're uh, you're putting a lot of stock in um, the numbers that have been publicly released by the project proponents or the technology proponents. So like I said, there's, you know, there's 10 or 12 of these technologies that are sort of floating around that are under investigation. Some of them have put out uh, GHG intensity measures. Some of them have not. Um, this isn't going to change the sort of um, tank to wheels part. So like once you get the gasoline in your car, it, it doesn't matter whether that comes from partially upgraded bitumen or, or um, a fully upgraded bitumen or anything. Once it's in your car, uh, by the time that you burn it, the, the act of driving your car around, that doesn't change. So we're really talking about uh, sort of well to refinery or well to tank emissions. And um, some of the proposals, when you look at them, uh, if you trust the numbers, um, you should get a modest reduction in greenhouse gas intensity of, of production well to, to tank. That's what we find. And that's because the new partial upgrading technologies tend to be a little bit better than the downstream technologies that they end up replacing. So, uh, you know, with the caveat that <laughs> refineries are really, really complicated and we're not refinery engineers. Which refinery you run it in. Exactly, which refinery you run it in. So generally those comparisons are against sort of a benchmark comparison for, for emissions intensity uh -huh. downstream. Uh, so... I think we'll have to wait until we actually get a commercialized um, facility online before we know for sure whether you and how it operates. Design it one way and operate it a different way. And that's exactly. usually a problem when it comes to intensity. And even, I mean, your bench test might not scale to a, to a, a field test. It, you know, there's a lot of unknowns there, but there is definitely a potential. Um, and if if uh, you're putting some stock in the in the numbers that the companies are coming up with, uh, a reasonable potential and a likely potential that you could see a fairly modest reduction in greenhouse gas intensity in terms of the the well to tank or life cycle uh, or like yeah, yeah. Life, I mean well to tank would be same as well to wheels right it's just not you're not yeah and I do think there's a bigger picture to be taken from your question and it is that the consideration of emissions intensity in these projects is there they. Um, the, you know, this, this is a common theme in, the, uh, in terms of oil sands investment. What is the emission intensity of extraction? And are things unbolting onto it, adding to it, or taking away from that? So it is part of the decision-making process. And, and it's an important part because one of the perverse incentives, if you look at Alberta's uh, climate leadership uh, legislation, you know, with the carbon tax and all that, um, no, no, no. Upgrading is exempt. <laughs> what was that? Kind of? New upgrading is exempt. Oh, that's an under doing a tank cap. That's yeah. It's under it's under a cap. It's not exempt. Um, but it's, it's exempt under the cap. Yeah, but but you're still you end up in some ways that that uh, that legislation disincentivizes things that would reduce well to wheels emissions if they increase emissions in Alberta. So you think about you know a partial upgrader will increase Alberta emissions relative to a benchmark that doesn't have a partial upgrader. Um, because yeah. you are producing whose emissions or whose is always yeah. a good question. Yeah. So it's whose emissions or so whose. Do you get that, Nick? Like if we increase the intensity of ex uh, upstream, so we build a facility, you're going to get the emissions within Canada. Yeah. But you're reducing the intensity downstream at some refinery potentially in the Midwest or United States. Yeah. We don't get, uh, no one gives us a high five for that. That's yeah. right. You, I mean, you increase a ton of Alberta emissions and reduce 1.2 tons in the States. So, so the world's net better. Yeah. 
but we're net worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's right? yeah, that's that's, that that's the, the greenhouse gas accounting about. problem. I call it, where uh, it's not by who who's demanding that the uh, the actual action that causes the um, the emissions, but it's the physical kitchen. But well, yeah, yeah, whole yeah, other podcast. I'll invite yeah. you guys back yeah. for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, so just just one one last thing, and then uh, uh, I think we've been going for quite a bit here, but. Um, so, so what? So, what is the what is the argument for public funding or public assistance on on getting these these going? So, it, it's there's it, there isn't any any full commercial scale ones up and running yet. Um, from from what I get. Well, this is a great area, and I'm just going to take a take it throw this just in just to mess the whole area up. You know, there's definitely some debatability about what is the definition of partial effort. Mm-hmm. You know, there is. There are freestanding projects and, uh, to that you know are, are built as partial upgrading, but there are existing projects that are uh, have processes that the impact the the quality of the bitumen coming out of the coming out of the facility. So they just take a, the example of um, Imperial's Curl project or Suncor slash Total slash Tech um, Fort Hills project. Both those projects use a process called paraffinic frost treatment that actually precipitates out some of the asphaltines in the processing. So what does that mean? They basically reduce or improve the bitumen that comes out in that process. So, you know, in the strictest sense, you know, that sounds like partial upgrading, um, but it's not a freestanding special process. So I just wanted to throw that whole wrench in there, but there is some, you know, just so people understand that when we're talking about processing technologies, we're talking about a spectrum of technologies. And it isn't this fits the bill or that fits the bill. There is there is some uh, vague vagueness uh-huh. <laughs> That's to that. Uh, so so I mean for the for the sake of disagreement, because it's always fun to disagree, Kevin, um, and because I have a Trump card, I, no, we haven't seen, you know, there are no freestanding partial upgrading facilities. There are no facilities here. Those are extraction. Commercial scale. Right, commercial there scale. There are some small ones. That's true. There are some small ones, but at commercial scale. Um, and my Trump card is the government of Alberta agrees with me, because if you read the terms of the RFP, uh, they're pretty clear about what counts as partial upgrading and what doesn't count as partial upgrading. Uh, so if, you, if you're if you willing to, uh, to accept the government's definition, we don't have a commercial scale partial upgrader, because that would be a freestanding facility that that once it's extracted, once it's above grade, uh, you need to run it through uh, to get to partial upgrading. That being said, paraffinic froth is really, really cool. We've been following it for a while. It's a it's a neat technology, and it's really cool to see what the oil sands uh, can deliver. You know when they have proper incentives to do so. So there we go. Um, but going back to your question on on sort of what's stopping this, um, you know the the biggest argument that we need to do something is. Uh, if you buy into the idea that there is um, a potential public benefit from doing this, whether that's through benefit to an Alberta firm or, or you know, wider environmental, wider social, wider business benefits, if you buy into the, the argument that there are potential benefits here, um, why haven't we seen a company progress, right? And so that, you know, there is a question as to why, but, but basically because we haven't seen anyone get to a commercial scale yet, we need to figure out why that is uh, because there's something that's standing in the way. And generally, you know, when, when we looked at the, at the numbers in the 2017 study, uh, what we found is, yeah, there's, there's pretty significant potential there, um, but it's a huge capital outlay for an untested technology. Um, and it's not something that's sort of sexy to activist investors. You know, okay. Elon Musk is not going not gonna to fly up to Alberta and throw a bunch of money at the oil sands because, uh, you know, he doesn't get a good press release out of it. There's nothing cool going on there. Um, so 
in terms of the technology development, you need something to bump the needle. Uh, is the government funding the right way to do it? I don't know. We have we have yet to see that. But you need something to bump this along because these technologies have sort of been bandied around on terms of uh, of bench scale tests and you know companies talking to each other. Some of them are going back a decade or more in terms of the tech development, and no one's there yet. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the question I always have with these things is you know if it's such a good idea, why isn't you know private industry just taking it upon themselves to do it? And you can either like one answer is either like, well, it actually isn't a good idea or like for I gather you're saying, Kent, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a high risk, high, like large capital investment. Um, and it's tough to, to get the that investment with that type of risk, uh, especially like you're yeah, saying, so the Elon Musk, so government can play a role in yeah. reducing that, that investment risk. I would also add there's a time and money question here, too. You, you get a. We're in 2018, you know, it's going, we're going into winter, yay, soon, right? Um, but, you know, so you look through the evolution of the time frame of all this stuff happening. So you have 2008, it's a heyday of upgrading. You got a whole bunch of plants with people promising to build them. You move through this shale revolution that really played out from 09, to, you know, we're still seeing the repercussions, 09 into 15. You go into a really low price environment. So the people that would have made these investments had their revenue actually crimped out. So as they were trying to prove, prove these technology, they lost the revenue stream to do it because the price of oil fell to the toilet. Uh, so, you, you know, you had this realization that, hey, the world's changed in 14. You started realizing it and then the revenue stream drops out. So as you're trying to make pivots to improve and do things differently, your revenue stream to keep this stuff going falls out. So you haven't really had that time to get your hand around it yet. And these things take time. You're talking about just to build, uh, you know, an upgrader, you know, the old school, the big ones. Uh, you're looking at four years or more. So, you know, you got to line up your capital. You're talking about a long-term process here to get this through. I think the government's investment, and I'm not, I'm like Ken, I don't have any views on the right way or the wrong way, isn't, is, is it aimed at accelerating that process because it does take time. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, Alberta, we have a very particular resource. We have a very idiosyncratic resource here. It doesn't look like resources in the rest of the world. Um, and we've seen exactly this model of, of government involvement before. So the underground test facility uh, for pioneering in situ extraction technologies, that was something where there was government support. Uh, they got the tech development out of it, and, and it's really helped exploit the resource. So sort of the other grander, large-scale economics way to view this is the resource itself is, is you know, it's a public resource. It's it's belongs constitutionally. It's, a, it's an Alberta resource. It's a public resource. It doesn't belong to the firms that they're are extracting it. So on that sense, it does make sense for the government to take a bit of a stewardship role here uh, and think about what they want the future of that resource to look like in terms of exploiting it, extracting it, um, and, and really sort of, you know, putting some upfront money in terms of the investment because they will get a return and they'll get a direct financial return. This isn't just a return that, oh, we're increasing GDP and so we'll get higher tax revenues. I mean, if you are getting extracting, uh, increasing um, bitumen prices for the partially upgraded bitumen, if you are getting increased extraction, that's going to come directly through the royalty payment. So the government does have a stake in this and they do have a responsibility to act as the steward of the resource. So I think that plays part of a role here as well. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going into it. Um, it's always difficult for an economist to uh, to justify subsidies for private industry, and, and at least 200 million of this billion dollars is a subsidy. The other 800 million is loan guarantee, which is also arguably a subsidy um but i think you know there is a stronger justification here than just um 
throwing money at industry to, to, to try to prop it up. I, I do think there is a longer term play here. And as Kevin said, speeding up the technology development, there's probably pretty significant value there as well, because every year that goes by that we don't build a partial upgrader, uh, you know, is is a year of potential benefit that we lose and everything else gets discounted or pushed further along. So bit of hand waving in that answer, but, uh, no, that, that, uh, I think that answered it pretty well. And I'll, I'll note, yeah, for the, uh, the funding that Alberta does have available, they're, they're accepting applications until the beginning of September. So it's going to be very interesting to see after those get in there and they, um, you know, they go and kind of go through them what, uh, what the result is. So, um, but with that, I think I've taken up, uh, probably too much of your guys' time already, but, um, I want to thank both of you for, coming into the uh the canada west offices and having this having this talk uh with me today from from toronto i hope the uh the distance wasn't too uh too strange i think it's worked pretty well but um is there was there any last few things you guys want to say or uh, you think uh, the major points have been covered I, yeah i don't i think the questions i think that was a good set of questions we've we've this is sort of the third time that kevin and i have had this discussion with the audience where, yeah i think well i think we're getting better <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe is a comment on the first time that we talked about it, but yeah, no, uh, great questions, and, and I don't think I've got anything else to add. I would do my shameless plug because, like Kent, I have I have free research, um, so uh, if people are interested, in it, they can they can access and download it from www.ihsmarket. We misspelled market for fun. M a r k i t dot com slash oil sands dialogue. Awesome. I'm- and if we're doing if we're doing plugs, I'll sneak one more in there because we were. I know Kevin was hoping he'd get the last word. You can say something after I'm talking. Um, we were talking about greenhouse gas emissions and emissions accounting. Uh, the school of public policy has also got a body of work on that. I published a couple of papers with Sarah Dobson, so that's available there as well for anyone who was, uh, you know, if anyone's ears perked up when we were talking about that. So uh, yeah, more more shameless plugs for for research. And that again, policyschool.ca. Yeah, yeah. and I can give a seal seal of endorsement to the stuff that comes out of both of your shops. Very very good information. I find it very useful for my own work. So it's it's great stuff and awesome, guys. Well, thank you very much for uh, for. Uh, Joining us on What the West. And for everyone listening, if you haven't, subscribe on whatever service you use and uh, and give us a like or whatever the digital equivalent of it is. So thanks very much. Mm-hmm.